It's Monday, January 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The marijuana dispensary MedMen had a very promising beginning, looking to be the Apple store of pot. It was one of the first mainstream brands that drew many to invest in marijuana, but things soon began to unravel. There was a class action lawsuit from employees alleging labor law violations and other lawsuits alleging manipulating stock prices, bank fraud, and more. Adam Bierman had to resign as CEO, and the stock value dropped significantly. Ben Schreckinger, national political correspondent at Politico, joins us for how the apple of pot collapsed. Next, we'll talk about the strange world of cheerleading music. After the success of the Netflix docuseries Cheer, more people were taking a look into the world of cheerleading. And one of the things that stands out is the music accompanying the high-flying routines. Gone are the days of simple rhyming chants. Modern cheer squads are performing to club-like tracks full of EDM drops, pump-up raps, and laser beam samples. Cheer music still has to abide by copyright laws and music licensing, and it has spurred a whole new industry that makes original music for top cheer teams. Duncan Cooper, music journalist and former editor of The Fader, joins us for the world of cheer music. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Some of the problems that MedMed encountered were unique to MedMed, unique in some ways to the personalities of the founders and the approach that they took to this space. Joining us now is Ben Schreckinger, national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about an interesting story you were working on about MedMen. This was the marijuana company that was poised to be the apple of pot. And, you know, for years, I mean, it opened up, it was expanding like crazy. I remember in California specifically when recreational marijuana passed and everybody can go, you know, all the news channels were positioned up at MedMen locations in West Hollywood for those first few people that were going to get their legal pot and everything. You know, it, it's very much seemed to be the it company for marijuana and to kind of take it throughout the country. But a lot of crazy stuff happened with them and it seems that the company is falling apart in some ways. Ben, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, where even to begin? This is a company that went through a number of iterations. It was founded in 2010. At first, they were running medicinal dispensaries in California. As legalization came to more and more states and legalization of recreational weed started coming online in parts of the country, they saw an opportunity in consulting for other marijuana businesses. They shut down their operations and then pivoted back when they decided that they should not only be running dispensaries, but have a totally vertically integrated business running the farms, having delivery services, all under the MedMen name. They became the hottest brand in this space for a number of years. They had that West Hollywood location. They opened up on Abbott Kinney Boulevard. They opened up on Fifth Avenue in New York. They had a, a very artistic ad that was directed by Spike Jones, you know, better known for things like the movie being John Malkovich. And they IPO'd with, with a valuation well over a billion dollars. They were probably the first cannabis unicorn in the United States. But since about early 2019, maybe late 2018, is where you would probably start to chart their decline they got hit with a number of lawsuits, some of which made some pretty salacious allegations. 
they had expanded very rapidly and started to see their costs catching up with them. They were losing tens of millions of dollars a quarter at some point, and their stock price has started to reflect it. Their former CEO and founder, Adam Bierman, remains on the board of directors, but he's out as CEO. And right now, their future is very, very much in doubt. Yeah. And, you know, as you've been saying, MedMen was supposed to be this promise of the industry for the green rush, people to actually make money legitimately beyond the local pot shops and everything. They were trying to change the whole image. And I've been into a couple MedMen's. I think I was in the West Hollywood one. I was also in the one in Las Vegas. And they're very nice inside. You know, you order on an iPad and they'll take you to the register. They get your stuff in the back. They put it in a little pouch. Everything's done, you know, above board. It's all nice and very efficient. But, you know, that wasn't the case. You know, operating in the marijuana world is very complicated because of its legal status. Whether states are legalizing it or not, federally, it's still a Schedule One drug. So it just has a whole slew of effects from there. It's hard to bank, you know, uh, go to a bank and get loans and things like that. It's just hard to operate in the marijuana business. That's absolutely right. Some of the problems that MedMen encountered were unique to MedMen, unique in some ways to the personalities of the founders and and the approach that, that they took to this space. But a lot of the problems they encountered were not unique to them at all, very much emblematic of what other companies in this space are encountering. You went through some of them. One former MedMen executive to sort of illustrate the point of how difficult from a practical perspective it is to operate when you are in cannabis right now, sort of on, on the frontier of a new industry. Explain to me their experience down in Florida, just trying to figure out how to set up a store. Under the state law in Florida, you cannot advertise your dispensary. So they had to figure out what that meant legally. Could they even have a sign? It turns out that they could have a sign. Then there were questions about the windows. Part of this sort of ban on advertising meant that you couldn't be displaying in your window merchandise from your store, things bearing your logo. To try to address that at one point in some of these Florida locations, they frosted their windows to try to comply with state law. And they found out that they were running afoul of local regulations and, and police departments were telling them, you can't frost your windows, that's illegal. So then they had to pay to, uh, to get new windows again. And that is just, you know, one state and one aspect of retail. And you can imagine encountering this in every aspect of your business, everywhere that you operate. It's going to be a real drag on your bottom line. Yeah, I mean, they face higher federal tax rates, you know, because there was laws passed to uh, prevent drug dealers from taking business deductions, things like that. So there's just all the things that they have to deal with. But throughout that, they were still expanding like crazy. They were making a ton of money. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that because that's always kind of fun. The owners of MedMen here were buying big mansions, fancy cars, showing up in some of the lawsuits against them were uh, just huge amounts of money spent on security and making like bunkers in the security bunkers. In the, what do they call them? A, uh, like a bug out bunker or something in, in one of their houses. Safe room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, the uh, the founders, Adam Bierman and Andrew Moblin, very much began to live a, a mogul lifestyle when this business started to take off. Bierman, looking at property records, has a, has a seaside mansion. Moglin first purchased a multi-million dollar home 
in, and I think it was West Hollywood, a few years later, ended up purchasing an $11 million home in the Hollywood Hills. His new neighbors included Leonardo DiCaprio. There were allegations made by a former executive in a lawsuit that they were spending millions of dollars on personal security, that there was a, a custom Tesla SUV purchase with, with company funds, and that even Bierman's personal marriage counselor was brought on the payroll, making something like $300,000 a year as a staff, sort of a staff therapist, a, a performance improvement expert, I think was the term used in the lawsuit. And employees of MedMen at, at headquarters at times could have a massage. They would occasionally bring a masseuse in, which is a you know a pretty nice perk. Oh, and there was a kombucha machine at headquarters. So <laughs> things yes. things got pretty high flying at times. Right, but that's kind of par for the course, I guess, for you know what they wanted to be, kind of this big tech startup, as you mentioned, kind of the first cannabis unicorn in the industry. You know, these are kind of the perks that go with all of that. So. Where did it all go wrong? Because they've started to close some locations. I know they had to lay off a bunch of people as well. What happened? Was it something still just in their business practice or did the industry change? What happened that you know they started falling off? There were sort of a thousand possible answers to, to what went wrong. But I think from the most sort of big picture perspective, what happened is that there was a green rush and this company rode that wave harder and faster than than any other company. And they decided that the way to be in a position to capitalize on this emerging market when it finally became mature was about ahead of everybody else and, and not uh, not really be too concerned about spending, pay, pay what it took to break into new markets, and, and then hope or assume that the business would materialize, that the waves of legalization would continue to sweep over big markets, that and that the legal market would grow and become a big booming industry. And that may still happen, but it hasn't happened fast enough for MedMen. Yeah, you know, you got to couple that with interesting fact of the coronavirus hitting. Obviously, in a lot of places, the marijuana dispensaries were deemed essential businesses. And sales had went up, but I guess, you know, just a little too far gone for MedMen to, to really recover, at least without helping them out. That's right. And at least some parts of the country, you're seeing record cannabis sales with the coronavirus lockdown, including in Florida, where I believe April was the, the highest volume month ever for legal sales of weed in that state. And yet, despite that, just a, a couple of weeks ago, MedMen shut down several of its locations in that state. So, you know, the business as a whole was booming there, and they could not keep their storefronts open. Certainly a, a sign that their troubles continue. Well, I mean, it was definitely a company that looked like it was on the rise and uh, to take over the industry and, and really bring it into the mainstream. You know, MedMen hired lobbyists. They did all sorts of stuff to try to change legislation. There was a lot that went into it. Where does the company stand now? I mean, obviously, it's still operating, but I know their shares are, are selling at a fraction of the price that it once was. What are they looking like now? They are a shadow of their former selves and, and really of what they were just a year ago, just 18 months ago. They've had uh, several rounds of layoffs over the last six plus months. Yeah, they're, they're, they're trading for 
something like five cents on the dollar of where they'd been at their peak of their stock price. Uh, and they're in a position where even they're having trouble paying vendors and offering them MedMen stock in lieu of cash payments. They continue to to operate, to look to turn the ship around, but they are in pretty dire straits at the moment. Ben Schreckinger, National Political Correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Because the cheerleaders want such technical music for their routine, they love when they're working with a musician who can craft stuff just for cheer. Joining us now is Duncan Cooper, music journalist and former editor-in-chief at The Fader. Thanks for joining us, Duncan. Hey, happy to be here. We're going to be talking about a fun story here inside the strange insular world of cheerleading music. Netflix just had its docuseries called Cheer. You know, it just came out not too long ago, and I got a chance to see a few of the episodes. And really, any time I see some type of cheerleading competition, like on cable while I'm flipping the channels, I always stop to see it for a little bit just because it is a pretty crazy sport being tossed up in the air. I know it's dangerous. People get hurt all the time. But the music, the music has kind of taken on its own world now. And it started off as mixtapes and things like that. But now there's full-on companies devoted to making original music and even covers of other music to be folded into these routines. So, Duncan, tell us a little bit about cheerleading music. Yeah, I think so. The history of cheerleading goes back all the way to the 19th century when we're you know, a bunch of guys on the sidelines of a football game saying funny little chants. By maybe the 1950s or 60s, it starts to get, like, standardized. There starts to be pyramids and some of the familiar moves of today. By the time the 80s get around, ESPN broadcast starts broadcasting cheerleading competitions for the first time. And you start to see this just, like, exponential growth of the sport in terms of how many people are doing it, how technical it gets, the risk that these athletes put themselves at. And a big thing, too, was the music. The music gets crazier and crazier. By the 80s, people would play a little clip of Eye of the Tiger and maybe then some sort of, like, electronic dance music of the time. Like you mentioned today, there's entire companies sometimes employing, like, 20 people working full-time on creating songs that are used entirely for tier routines. And one of the cool things is every team wants to be unique, and that means every season they want a brand new song. So it's good work if you can get it to be a musician that's making one song for one team a season, and next season they're going to come back wanting more. Right. You mentioned kind of the evolution of the music. Uh, I wanted to play a little clip. This is from a cheer routine from the 80s, something that we found in your article. So just listen to it right now, and then we'll play kind of something more contemporary. So, so pretty uh, straightforward. Like you said, uh, something kind of just a nice little dance track, something like that. And obviously the cheerleaders are dancing, but they're also doing like physical yelling cheers and, and chants and whatnot. And for contrast, this is actually one of the teams that was profiled in the docuseries Cheer on Netflix. This is one of the songs that they use for their routines, and it's completely different now. <laughs> Hurts. 
gosh. So tell us about that evolution right there specifically. I love that song. I love that song. got me interested in the first place. I was just a guy watching the show and I was like, what are they talking about? There's a line in there where the guy raps, uh, smells like chicken. And I was so confused. Like, why is this happening? I looked it up and it's this guy named Patrick Gavard and He's been making cheer music since the 1990s when he was an athlete himself. He actually won the national title. Because the cheerleaders want such technical music for their routine, they love when they're working with a musician who can craft stuff just for cheer. So you have these really fast transitions. You notice the music is faster than that one in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Like The beats per minute has gone up by, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 or something like that, which actually translates to like, much harder skills and much faster transitions. And it pulls a little bit from modern music. Like it sounds like something you might hear at an EDM festival, but it's so much faster and crazier. One of the interesting things that happened with the evolution of this cheer music is that it first started off kind of like how I mentioned remixes, other contemporary songs, and you'd make a mix and that's what it was. But once things really started to kind of get going, they had to follow the same type of copyright laws that a lot of other people follow. So there was a couple cases where people got sued for using music without having it properly licensed. And this is kind of what led it into this whole industry now, this cheer music industry or spirit music, I think they call it also, where they either have to properly license things. I know uh, Varsity Spirit is one of the big parent companies that does a lot of stuff with cheerleading overall. They sent down a rule that said only use covers, original music, just to get away from these possible lawsuits that you can get. Yeah, there was a guy I talked to in my article. He was actually the guy who made the music for the Bring It On movie. His name is Mark Bryan. And in 2014, he got sued and another cheer music producer got sued by Sony. Because back then, it was kind of the Wild West. Like, teams would include whatever the most popular music of the day was, except for they would remix it in these crazy high-energy ways. Like you said, Varsity, after the losses happened, Varsity is a massive company. They're worth $2 billion today. They don't want any part of getting sued by Sony Records. So they changed the rule and they said that uh, they buttoned it up. It's really impressive. In order to perform at a competition today, the cheerleading team has to literally turn in a physical copy of their music license to make sure that everything's on the up and up. As I mentioned, that kind of led to this whole thing of original cheer music. And even beyond that now with how technology has boomed some of these companies are offering web apps so that people can start working on their own music teams maybe could start putting together something on their own so it's really just kind of this evolution of the music itself and as i mentioned with the original songs things you can cater things to each individual team it's just this whole industry underground industry if you will that really only a lot of people in the cheer industry know about that's a great thing i mentioned that weird line tastes like chicken that was a rap that was written just for the Navarro bulldogs and it was a reference to their rival who were called the Cardinals. It's a great look into it. I suggest everybody go out and read Duncan's piece on this because there's a lot of stuff that we just couldn't get to. But it is a, a fun industry to look into. And the performances obviously need to match that high intensity energy. And that's what it does there. Duncan Cooper, music journalist and former editor for The Fader. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Vicky Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this 
Health is your daily dive 